Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in professional development and career planning in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to share ideas that can elevate your leadership role in your current or future nonprofit organization. Thanks for listening and for your feedback. Uh, it is great to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are really on the cutting edge of productivity and strategy in our sector. This episode is no exception. I had a fantastic conversation with Laura Belcher, who is the president and CEO of Habitat for Humanity in the Charlotte region. It's one of the largest Habitat affiliates in the United States, and she brings a fantastic a wealth of financial and strategic planning experience to her role, having previously served in corporate financial services roles at several uh, organizations. She took that experience and jumped into the nonprofit sector about 15 years ago, first in arts administration, then in Habitat, uh, and has never really looked back. Lots of leadership lessons from Laura in this conversation. Uh, like every one of you, she's leading through a health crisis, but determined that we don't lose sight of the fundamental mission of Habitat, which is the housing crisis. And like many of you, you still have a core mission that you want to elevate uh, in conjunction with the challenges uh, our communities face as it relates to COVID-19. We did do a deep dive on what is the headline topic of this episode, which of course is nonprofit mergers. And Laura has real-time experience having planned carefully and implemented a merger with another nonprofit affiliate. And we get into some of the questions that you should be asking as well. When is it a good time to merge with another nonprofit? What are the characteristics of a potential partner that you should be seeking? And how literally do you implement such uh, an engagement? All of this and much more is also included in our show notes. This is episode number 51. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources and topics that Laura and I discuss, including her book recommendation, which is a very good one, and the great work Laura is doing at Habitat Charlotte. Speaking of resources, don't forget to go to our website. Um, If we can help you or your organization with its strategy or you personally with your professional development path, let us know and we'd be happy to help. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Laura Belcher. Laura, thank you for joining me on the path. Well, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you, Pat. Laura, there's lots of good things to talk about, although there are some not so good things to talk about that you and so many nonprofit leaders are dealing with right now, Um, but excited to unpack it. And of course, I've always been impressed with your approach to nonprofit leadership, and I know our listeners will benefit from your journey. Speaking of your journey, how did you get into this nonprofit world? Well, that's a great question. Thanks, Patton. Um, I have been in the nonprofit world as an employee for 15 years now. Uh, I spent the first 20 years of my career in corporate, so I have an accounting degree and background. So I spent several years in public accounting and then uh, worked in financial services, which is not all that unusual in Charlotte for someone to have worked in financial services at some point. (laughs) Right, Um, right. And then, um, and then quite honestly, what happened was um, a job um, position opened up at the Arts and Science Council 15 years ago, and I had two different people in my life uh, that didn't know each other, 
uh, contact me and say, this sounds like the right job for you. Um, and when that happens, you know, sometimes you have to listen to those, um, those uh, whispers over your shoulder and pay attention. Why are people doing that? And I had quite honestly always thought that at some point in my life, I would work for a nonprofit. I thought it would be the sunset of my career, not the, uh, the main um, drive of my career. But um, so I was intrigued. So I went and I talked to the folks at the Arts and Science Council. They did have an opening. Um, and so I joined them as their CFO and then became the COO and then did some fundraising, which um, those three areas are really good things to have done in order to become the CEO of Habitat Charlotte Region. So it was a great springboard to prepare me. Uh, and I joined Habitat Charlotte Region now uh, six years ago this month. So just had my anniversary last week. That is fantastic. And clearly the financial background you had, I'm sure was an expertise you've been able to build upon. Was it the fundraising? Was that perhaps the, the new and uh, need for some learning or experience? Yeah, it really was. I, you know, I had done a, a fair amount of business development in my corporate life, which is, you know, kind of a sales strategy. And so making a case for support Good point. and that kind of thing um was there but the idea of asking an individual for, for personal resources versus asking a company for their business uh is a different um different approach and so doing a little bit of fundraising um at the arts and science council was a good springboard for me and the amount of fundraising you do as a ceo uh at habitat well we'll unpack that further because as you know and i'm sure you have conversations to this day with people who are pondering you know, moving from, uh, I call it the lateral entry from the yep. for-profit sector to the nonprofit sector, and you've experienced it directly. So we'll talk about that more in a bit. However, right. another question I'm asking my guest, Laura, is how are you adapting personally uh, in, in from an organizational sense with all the things you're juggling right now in this kind of virtual environment? Have you found anything in particular to help you be more effective? Um, Maybe, maybe not more effective, but at least um, somewhat productive. Um, <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I am one of those that has to stick to a morning routine. Um, and so while I know that I've got um, colleagues all across uh, the city and the country that love the idea that you can kind of roll out of bed and, and, you know, go to the computer and start work and that kind of thing. I, um, I follow a morning routine. I get up, I take a shower, I get dressed. I usually put some kind of habitat sportswear on um, and wear it as a uniform while I'm working. And then when I am done working for the day, I go change clothes and I take my habitat uniform off. Um, it helps me recognize that while work and home are blended together right now and that the space may not feel all that different, um, it is healthy to have a little bit of delineation between work and non-work. Um, and the good news is that the video is not on and you can't see my desk, but I am surviving right now by endless sticky notes. Um, <laughs> so many sticky notes. I, whatever it takes to keep things organized. As long as you know where everything is and what they all mean, I'm <laughs> sure that will be fine. And, uh, are you finding your teammates, is there some struggle in, in terms of that delineation between work and home blending together. I, I've heard talk of that and of course the stress that everyone's under, but I wonder, are you seeing it amongst your colleagues? Yeah, you know, I mean, Patton really, I mean, the, the amazing thing, um, the team has done such a great job of trying to pivot, right? And, and work in non-traditional ways and doing a great job. Uh, what I'm finding though, is that as the weeks and months of this continue, it is wearing on folks and some of the 
the novelty of video chatting is getting old and that not being in the same room and being able to be really truly in fellowship with people right. uh, is, is wearing on people, right? Um, and so it is, it is something that we're really conscious of and we're trying to figure out how, now that we've got a longer term horizon on this whole situation, how are we going to keep that in mind that um, the lack of personal interaction uh, does deteriorate communication and understanding and compassion, you know, just, we've got to figure out a way to, to keep all of that, the humor and the, and the laughing and the, you know, the spontaneity that happens when you're in a group setting doesn't necessarily always happen as easily on a digital chat. That's such a good point. And, and when Laura, I've always been impressed with you because you've been, focused, I think, on, on employee engagement and retention. Uh, have you found any tricks to, to help keep that engagement uh, despite this kind of virtual environment or just kind of what encouragement have you offered your team as they deal with this? Um, you know, a lot of it is just encouraging um, compassion and flexibility right now and recognizing that uh, there is a lot of stress uh, on each of us as individuals and then certainly as managers and leaders of an organization. Uh, and so trying to really encourage people to be creative uh, and give grace um, has been a big piece of it, both for me right. to give grace to my team and then encourage my team to give grace to their team. Um, you know, people are in a grieving cycle right now. They're grieving wor work as it used to be. And so you've got the different stages of grief and you've got some people that are frustrated and some people that are resigned to it and some people that are angry and and you know some that are in denial that this is going to keep going on for for a while so really trying to understand that every associate comes to it at a different place and that they're going to move through that cycle over time as well um so we just we've got to give a lot of grace right now that's so well put and i think that's a theme that nonprofit leaders need to embrace overall because of course as you know you've got some of your associates right that are literally homeschooling kids for the first time and having to deal with, you know, challenges in every aspect of their life. And I guess it, it, it perhaps is a segue to though, while we have a healthcare crisis now, Laura, I've, I've read a quote from you that the healthcare crisis didn't diminish the housing crisis that you're already dealing with. So talk about how you are still helping deal with the housing crisis despite this pandemic. Yeah. So Patton, I mean, if anything, the pandemic and the healthcare crisis has exposed um, the fragility of our housing situation. Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, that awareness is um, unfortunate, but healthy for the, for, for the community to understand just how fragile housing is for so many of our residents. And so we have had a commitment to continue to build during the pandemic, um, has, you know, for the past four months and for the, the coming future. Um, so when we first had to pivot uh, in March with stay-at-home orders and things like that, uh, you know, residential construction was considered an essential business because of the housing crisis. Uh, and so we continued to build. We focused on the houses that were already under construction so that we could try and finish them out. Uh, and we did that. And so from mid-March to the end of June, we moved 14 families into permanent housing wow. um, by, by finishing houses um, and, and getting those projects done. Uh, so we, we've stayed true to our mission and we've reallocated our personnel and some of our attention to make sure that we are um, still building. Now we're doing it um, very differently um, because we're following safety protocols, right? The, the safety of our team uh, is, is utmost in my 
um, my worries. And so yeah, yeah. we've got new, new protocols on how we build houses and protocols on how we run restores and how we engage in the office. And um, that safety is really important. Um, we are uh, using subcontractors a whole lot more right now in our build process than we ever have before because of the way that um, volunteering has changed. Well, in, in, for those listeners who aren't familiar, of course, I think most everyone's familiar with Habitat in general, but the Habitat Charlotte affiliate that you lead is one of the largest in the state, if not the country. So maybe talk about the size and scope of the program you lead. Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, so, you know, lots of times we talk about size. People will compare the the kind of the new construction, which is what people understand um, Habitat to be the most. So this year um, we'll build 46 new homes um, in our footprint. So, wow. um, you know, that, that is down from what we might've done in a pre COVID environment, but, but that is still a pretty healthy run rate um, and put makes us one of the, you know, maybe 10 largest um, builders in the country um, if for, from a habitat perspective. Um, we also repair homes. So we go into homes, not, not habitat built homes, but homes that were built in the, 40s, 50s, and 60s that mostly are occupied by seniors, and they've been there 10, 20, 30 years. So, you know, they've raised their families in these homes, uh, and, and they're just not in a position now on a fixed income to maintain the house um, the way they might have been able to before. Right. A lot of senior widows. Um, and so we'll go in and we'll return that house to a safe and decent standard of living so that they can age in place. And we're planning to do 126 of those repairs in the coming year. My goodness. Well, clearly uh, evidence of the impact you're having throughout this region. And of course, something I, having volunteered myself, Laura, the impact of volunteer engagement is so critical to Habitat. And of course, that, like everything else, I'm sure has been adapted. So how have you adjusted volunteer engagement, which I guess so many nonprofits are having to adjust as well in this environment? Yeah, for, ha for Habitat, volunteerism is a cornerstone to our business model. And so we were on track this past fiscal year to engage probably 10,000 volunteers over wow. the course of the year. And in March, we took that from 10,000 to zero. So that was a pretty abrupt change to our business model uh, to look at how we were going to build houses without the volunteers. You can, you know, imagine folks that are listening or thinking about, you know, 20, 25 people coming out and raising walls and putting roofs on houses. You know, you need a lot of, uh, of manpower to do that, a lot of um, people. Uh, and so when you don't have that, you have to change the way you do it. So you have to either use more staff, um, which slows down the process, or you have to hire subcontractors, which increases the cost uh, to build a home. So uh, we're doing both. We're using our construction staff uh, to do some of the tasks that volunteers would have done, and we're using subcontractors. So that has changed things a lot. Uh, we did start welcoming back in um, early July some of what we call our regular volunteers. Um, and our regular volunteers are just amazing teams of folks, uh, Patton. So we've got teams that of uh, volunteers that have historically come out with us a day a week. So we've got the Tuesday crew and the Wednesday crew and the Thursday crew and the Friday crew. Um, so these are mostly folks that either 
um, have, you know, alternative work schedules. And so they wanted, you know, they're home on Tuesdays and Thursdays and they want to come out and volunteer every Thursday, or they might be retired or they might be uh, a stay at home mom whose kids are at school during the day. And so they come volunteer with us during the day. Uh, so these are our regular volunteers. They know us well, they know the construction process well. Um, and so we started welcoming them back because it is easier to social distance right. with someone that knows the details of the construction project that more intimately. So we're, we're starting to phase uh, our regular volunteers back into the schedule, production schedule to the extent that they want to come and are able to come. Um, and that, that is absolutely helping, but that is, you know, two or three, four people on site. That's not the teams of 20 and 30 that we're used to. Um, and then in our restores, we have um, seven restores across our footprint and volunteers have also been the lifeblood of our restores and our uh, Julia's bookstore and cafe. Uh, and again, we're welcoming the regular groups, uh, the regular volunteers back into those schedules so that they can, um, you know, spend some time with, with their colleagues and, and be in good fellowship. But again, lots of safety, lots of good protocols. We're making sure that the volunteers and our staff are very, very safe. Um, we hope, um, you know, that we can engage more group volunteer kind of opportunities um, in the fall and into the winter. Um, but a lot of that's going to depend, quite honestly, on uh, the trends on cases in Mecklenburg County. Uh, yeah. We're following that very closely. We're looking at, you know, the governor's recommendations on phasing. Uh, and so while we want to volunteer, and, and the thing that really warms my heart is that we're contacted by a lot of folks that want to come volunteer with us. They know there's a housing crisis. They know this is something that they can do. Um, and so we're just trying to find the right balance of when is the right time to engage volunteers. We will do it again. It's so important to um, our community relationship. Um, we're just doing it very slowly and very intentionally. Well, and I've, I've always been impressed too, Laura, and you, you, the engagement process obviously has the live volunteer experience, but I guess your communications team has certainly done a great job of, of continuing to keep people connected, I guess, through your various communication channels. Yeah, so yeah, the, big shout out to our communications team. Since, since the pandemic started, we have been doing um, kind of monthly town halls, our Ola uh, series. We are starting a podcast. We have increased our email um, newsletter distribution. So we're trying to, in this time where we can't be together, we are trying to enhance and increase our communication channels. And so um, they're doing um, terrific work um, and trying to increase the touch points. Yeah, and I, I knew you'd help illustrate that because you're right. So many organizations struggling without that live contact are having to maybe double down on their other communication channels in the interim. Um, You've also had, if it wasn't busy enough in your life and world, <laughs> Laura, uh, you you merged with another affiliate during this uh, COVID crisis time, um, which I know was not necessarily the way you planned it, um, but would love to talk about that because I, I know you were thoughtful in the exploration of a potential merger. And let's start with that. Uh, yeah. What were what was the thinking behind the possibility of merging? Yeah, so Habitat Charlotte merged with our town's Habitat uh, effective, um, you know, essentially midnight, um, March 1st. Um, and so just for context for folks, um, Habitat Charlotte historically served uh, the city of Charlotte, uh, the unincorporated parts of Mecklenburg County, and the town of Pineville. 
And then our town's habitat served North Mecklenburg, so the towns of Huntersville, Cornelius, Davidson, and all of Iredell County. And so our two affiliates, um, both active building uh, affiliates, started talking about a year ago about shared services. And are there some things because of Habitat Charlotte's size that our towns might have been paying a third party to do that maybe they could just pay us to do uh, and we would get some efficiency out of it. We would not have to duplicate efforts as much um, and there could be some financial savings in that. So we started talking about it from a shared services perspective first. And then the first thing we did is we merged our marketing and communication team and, um, you know, kind of merged, took over um, the opportunity to consolidate websites and just felt like having competing messaging in the marketplace didn't make as much sense. Um, You're still so separate at that time. Sorry to interrupt was, you, Laura, but yeah, no, we were, it wasn't a full out merger at that point. No, just shared services. It was just a trial run of, right. you know, could, uh, our marketing and communications team run their social media platforms using a lot of the same messaging and could we run their websites with a lot of the same messaging could we do donor mailings um, instead of trying to create two different donor mailings what if we use the same mailing but you know one for the our towns with uh, you know their story and their logo and one for charlotte with our story and our logo but use some of the shared collateral so that we weren't having to duplicate so much effort um, and so that went well and then you know then they approached us about, could we help with uh, managing some of their mortgage uh, portfolio? Because um, some folks may not realize that Habitat both builds the homes uh, and then we sell the homes to our homeowners at an affordable mortgage and we hold the mortgage. So we're also a, a mortgage company. So we're a construction company and a mortgage bank. Um, and so they approached us about helping with managing their mortgage portfolio. And so those two things kind of led us to the larger conversation of, well, you know, should we really just bring the two affiliates together as one? And um, the, the driving mantra through the whole thing was we should only do it if we can serve more families. If we can be more impactful in the community, then we should go through the challenge of the merger, right? We should, right. but we had, it had to be driven by the mission. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we spent the fall and the winter looking at it. We announced it in January. We made it effective March 1st. And then March 15th, we entered a pandemic. <laughs> so um, timing, yes. We didn't have a lot of honeymoon period um, as we went into the merger. It went into the merger planning and, and implementation. Um, but I have found, um, you know, if you try and find a silver lining, uh, the reality is um, the pandemic was almost like the, the great equalizer in the sense that neither affiliate had ever been through a global pandemic. So there's no, right, there's no right. expertise, right? So it immediately made um, for a even playing field for everybody to figure out how are we gonna pivot and what are we gonna do? And all ideas are important because no one's ever done this before. That's a great way to put it, optimistic for sure. Because uh, I, I guess as an outsider, Laura, I was gonna ask you, from, from the smaller Our Towns perspective, you certainly bring resources that they perhaps did not have. But so what's in it for you? Uh, for, forgive the blunt question. I guess the mission-based expansion, because yeah, someone absolutely. would say, why'd you go through this challenge maybe? Yeah, so um, it really, the, the opportunity to bring the two organizations together onto, you know, you know, and here's where the accountant in me is gonna come out, but uh, you know, one balance sheet, one enterprise, um, there were efficiencies to be gained financially um, that would allow us to then invest and, and serve more families, right? Because the mantra really was serve more families. 
And so we also felt like by being a larger geographic area, we can be more intentional about where we build and how we build and how we buy land. Um, and, you know, how do we introduce townhomes into our product mix? Um, and so it just, it just gave us the opportunity to be more intentional um, in how we structured things and how we could then also work with uh, corporate donors, right? And make sure that um, just because one affiliate is working with a corporate donor and another one that, you know, is, is working with a different donor, we could, we could align expectations and donor services and donor benefits and, and be much more consistent in how we interact with the corporate world um, and with the, the individuals that support us, the foundations, faith-based institutions. Um, we really felt like it was going to provide a more seamless experience for donors and volunteers in the area. That makes such good sense. I guess, is your advice to fellow CEOs in the nonprofit sector, if, if there is overlap programmatic or in marketing and development, at least explore it? I mean, I guess, how, how would you advise others that kind of ponder these types of mergers, but um, maybe are hesitant? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually a, a fan of, of merger and consolidation for the purposes of, of expanding programmatic impact. Yep, yep. Um, so I, I am not a fan of merging to save an organization, right? Like, um, you know, merger is not the way to solve financial challenges. Um, so my advice would be um, that more organizations should be looking at either full consolidation or at least shared services um, and, and to be more collaborative for the purposes of advancing mission, not for the purposes of solely trying to save a dollar. But if you can find a way to bring two, three organizations together to be more impactful, um, whether they have over, overlapping programming or just um, parallel programming, but by working together, they can do more of it more effectively, more impactfully, more quickly, uh, then I would encourage them to do that. That's such a good point. Had this been part of your on, and I think I know the answer, having had conversations with you, did you keep this on the strategic planning table for your leadership for the last several years? And, you know, in other words, you kept it uh, in everyone's kind of radar on their radar screen so that when an opportunity emerged, you were ready. Yeah, that was really our approach was we wanted to be, we want to be open to all opportunities that would help us remove barriers to home ownership right. for, for residents. And, you know, so when this opportunity came to us, we felt like it, it met our strategic criteria of removing barriers for home ownership. Um, we believe, and, you know, despite, you know, a little bit of COVID uh, interference with this, we do believe that, you know, over the next decade, we will be able to invest five to $6 million more in, in serving families and, you know, direct housing solutions uh, than we would have done if we remained independent. Ted, it's fantastic. And, and what I particularly like is you created the criteria for a successful merger before, as opposed to reacting. And I agree with you. I think a lot of times mergers come um, as a perhaps the failure of one organization being rescued by another. And you avoided that risk because you created that criteria for a successful merger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think that, that, Part of it is, you know, organizations have, um, you know, a lot to consider about how to really grow um, right, right. their impact. 
Uh, and if you can grow organically or you can grow by strengthening with others, you know, there's a there's an old old saying that says you can go faster alone, but further together. And I'm a big believer in that. And, it, you know, it it might take a little bit of time and energy and effort and creative thinking and, and some setting aside of egos and all those things in order to make a merger happen. But I believe that, you know, again, working together, you can go further um, than you can go alone. Well put. Um... Well, I, I wish I could say that the clock struck midnight, you merged, and then you just kind of went on your merry way. <laughs> but I'm guessing implementation uh, was not uh, easy uh, and is remains not easy. Are there any early lessons from the merger of the two organizations? Yeah, um, you know, it's probably similar to the ones we were talking about before um, as it relates to the stress of COVID, but, you know, the, the grace is a big piece of it. Um, you know, I think the, you know, there are different approaches that you can take with a, a consolidation, right? You can um, spend a lot of time on the front end trying to, to align all of your policies and procedures and technology before the effective date, or you can kind of do an effective date and then align policies, procedures. We went with the um, the second approach. And so, you know, like I said, we announced in January, we had done due diligence all through the winter and the fall, right. um, but we announced in January and we made it effective March. So it was a very quick closing, but a lot of that's because we had shared mission, vision and shared mission. Um, and what we knew we were going to do was spend March, April, May, and June kind of to the end of the fiscal year, really, you know, aligning policies and procedures and, and um, merging some da donor databases and, and volunteer databases and things like that. Um, COVID slowed some of that down, but sure. at the same time, um, it also gave some space and room and some opportunity to really think through our policies and procedures. I think the big learning, you know, it's not a big learning, but it's an affirmation is that um, when you have two organizations, you know, one, one is not always right and the other one is always wrong. And you just because it's big and small, um, that there's things to be learned from all parties. And so, you know, our family services team spent a lot of time going through policy and procedure one, you know, one by one, looking at what is the best way to serve families in a larger geographic area? You know, is it the way that it was done by organization A, organization B, or in light of A and B, is there C? Is there another option on how we should be serving families? Great point. So that has been a result. I mean, you, you end up with not theirs or yours, but a variation that maybe is better entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, and so each, each department, each team has been going through that process over the last four months. As you planned it, and I know things have changed obviously dramatically, but was the implementation kind of a year long effort or what kind of timelines did you put on the merger? Again, for someone thinking if we were to do this, how did you think about the timing? Yeah, so some things need to happen faster than others. And so what we did is we tried to not put too many artificial deadlines on things that didn't have to be done. Yeah. Um, and so kind of the, you know, the joke I had with, with the team was, you know, you'll, you'll kind of know when it has to be done because you can't stand living with two different policies or two different technology systems any longer. This has right. to get done. Right. Um, but the goal was, you know, to announce March 1st or to make it effective March 1st to do what we could by the end of the fiscal year, June 30th, knowing that, that, you know, there'd be things that lagged and the biggest things that lag actually were on the construction side, because if you start a new house with a floor plan or a blueprint that is from one affiliate versus the other, that house isn't going to be done for months, right? So you can't just wake up one day and say, okay, all of our house plans are exactly the same. Right. Um, you, have, you 
you have to finish building out what you um, have started. If you had commitments with a family around the style of house that you were going to build, you have to, you know, honor your, your family commitments. But, you know, I think, you know, for the most part, a lot of that is already done. So when we launched the new fiscal year, a lot of the policies and procedures are consistent now. And we'll be working our way into one set of blueprints probably by the end of the calendar year. Wow, that's good and helpful to kind of visualize that. And it clearly it demonstrates, I think, the agility you and your organization have shown through this merger. And also, again, the strategic focus, uh, which I'm, I'm delighted to highlight. I, I guess on that note, Laura, uh, you and I talked previously about strategic planning right now is a bit of a difficult premise <laughs> to think about multi-year strategic plans. And so talk about that where, you know, where we traditionally have three, four, five-year strategic plans. What are you doing right now on the strategic planning front? Yeah, uh, so good question. So, so Habitat Charlotte had been operating under a four-year strategic plan that that sunsetted June of 2020. So, oh, wow, right, yeah. 20, 21 days ago. Um, and <laughs> right. so, in some in some ways, um, you know, you could say we're you know, and we did not um, rush to roll out a new plan. Um, a because of the merger, and then B certainly because of the pandemic. Uh, we have slowed the strategic planning, the multi-year strategic planning down. And so what we decided to do for this year uh, was to create a one-year operating plan, really to get us through fiscal year 21, supported by a budget that has more uh, assumptions in it than any budget I've ever, you know, in my career worked on before, wow. right? So, you know, right. how much is fundraising going to go down? How much uh, how, how bad are mortgage delinquencies going to get? What what exactly will the sales and the restores be? But the labor model is more expensive. So what will the net income in the restores be? How yep. much is it going to cost to to hire subcontractors instead of volunteers? There are just so many assumptions in our operating plan right now that trying to extrapolate that into a multi-year projection seemed um, untenable. Yeah. So we agreed that we would do a one-year uh, operating plan. Uh, and really spend this year, you know, kind of learning by what we're seeing actually play out, but then really align with with our new board and the new board members and new staff members through the merger. What What is our, you know, three to five year plan? What are our goals? Uh, and as I've been thinking about it, Patton, I'm really, um, I'm really committed to wanting aggressive, um, bold, impact related goals in our next strategic plan that are Despite not these challenges you're saying yeah, that are not minimized by the pandemic right i think this yeah. is a moment where um you know i said earlier in the conversation that the pandemic has exposed the fragility of our housing situation we've also seen um you know a really needed um reawaking a reawakening of racial justice uh, conversations that need to lead to action and policy. Yep. And so, you know, I think bringing those two things together right now in a strategic plan for Habitat is critical. Um, Habitat has, you know, all along been about providing home ownership. Um, and in this community, we tend to, to work with families of color more than um, anybody else. Uh, any, you know, any, any other families that we're working with. And so we believe that we're helping to close, you know, to do what we can to close the difference in the racial homeownership gap 
Um, and so I think that when we look at what our goals for the future need to be, they need to be bold, both yeah. in what both in what we can physically do, but also what we can advocate for and how we can look at policy. Um, the reality is, you know, Charlotte's no different than any other community in the country. Um, we really can't build our way out of this housing crisis. We need to really look at what are the other policy levers that we can be pushing on um, to make housing more equitable for all. Well, and I, I love the rally cry around bold goals. So in terms of implementing that, is do you reward creative ideas on your team and maybe from the board with more resources? Uh, in other words, love the spirit. How do you see that kind of manifesting itself? Yeah, so, you know, my, my approach, um, you know, so when, when we did the strategic plan four, four or five years ago, five years ago we were working on it, and we came up with a, a kind of an overarching uh, BHAG um, uh, I'm a big fan of BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious <laughs> goals. Yes, indeed. And so at the time we came, you know, the senior leadership team and the, and the, the board five years ago said, okay, um, what if we put out a goal that says by the end of fiscal year 2020, we'll, we'll be serving 200 families a year, um, you know, in, within our mission. Uh, and that was a 55% growth rate in four years. Wow. And so at the time, I didn't know how we were going to do it. Nobody on my team knew how we were going to do it, but we felt like if we put a big enough rallying cry out there that it would encourage um, the creativity and the energy from everybody on the staff. And it, and it did that. And so we were able to, over the last four years, we have expanded our traditional programming, our, our new house builds and our critical home repair, but we've also stepped into and are doing things that we've never done before. So we have expanded financial literacy uh, classes in a new program called Money Matters, uh, where where we're making financial uh, literacy and homeowner readiness classes available to non-habitat homeowners, right? So we've always been known for having great financial literacy classes for folks that are in our program, but now, right. we're, doing, now we're doing classes for folks that are not in the program in order to help them have a vision of what would it take for them to become homeowner ready. Um, we're also doing more um, purchasing and selling of homes on the open market where we're able to income qualify families uh, right. and ensure that we buy a house, we rehab it, and then we sell it to uh, somebody in the community that is income qualified, but maybe hasn't come through our program. So they bring their own financing to the table and it allows us to preserve more housing stock in Charlotte as affordable housing uh, for the long term. You know, we have some res resale restrictions on it when we do that. And so we're, we're able to serve more families than we ever could have under just our traditional activities from five years ago. Um, and even with the, the COVID pivot and the four month um, interruption this year, I'm, I'm pleased to share that we did, we did serve over 200 families this year. Um, so we, we met that goal, which at the time, five years ago, I think some folks on, on my team thought was crazy, um, <laughs> but, it, but it gave just enough room to be scary uh, and demand bold creative thinking. That's fantastic, and and but never lost sight of the mission. You know, what you you probably would not have reached these goals if you were limited programmatically to the five year ago model, right? Right. But, no, absolutely. We could not have just organically grown um, right. what we were doing. Um, you know, you know, without unlimited resources. I mean, we can we can scale we can scale unlimited if we have unlimited resources, but um, but with with limited resources, 
um, then we needed to, you know, keep looking at and stretching our creativity on how we could do things different and how we could partner with more organizations in the community. Um, so, so most of most of the folks that are coming to our Money Matters classes are coming from referrals from other nonprofits in the community that are serving um, their constituents and want home ownership to be something that they have in their you know future plans. And so they they, they refer them to us um, to come work with us in order to determine, you know, are you ready to apply six months from now, six years from now, you know, you know, wh whatever the right horizon is, but we want to meet people where they are. Yeah, that's very impressive. And of course, I'm, as you know, a big fan of strategic networking. I assume you have a built-in and wonderful network through the Habitat organization, but it sounds like you've also been intentional about networking with other nonprofits that serve the same population. And I guess, how do you do that if so? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, so we more and more, we are acknowledging and recognizing that while we are a nonprofit that is focused on home ownership, right? And I really just, I believe that that home ownership is, is the greatest path to economic mobility. And as a community that is very focused on economic mobility, um, home ownership needs to be part of the conversation and a louder piece of it. Um, as we look at how we build generational wealth and break cycles of generational poverty, but we recognize um, very clearly that while home ownership is what we are delivering, our clients are renters. Um, they're future homeowners, right? So right. we need to spend right. more time um, working with our uh, colleagues that serve, um, you know, the rental constituency of the community. And so, um, you know, nonprofit housing providers have, have been meeting more regularly in the last year and a half. We're trying to be more collaborative, understand each other's business models and how we move families that are ready to and want to through that housing continuum from, you know, from rental to affordable rental to affordable home ownership. Yeah. But I love the way you, you've in essence backed up and looked at the larger strategic issues here. Haven't you? It's much more than just, construction, home construction, or perhaps how some would view habitat. That's such a limited view and you've helped uh, illustrate that it's much more than that. Yeah, I really do think that, you know, we, we are looking at um, anything that is a barrier to home ownership is now in our purview to, you know, look at how we remove that barrier, whether it's um, wages being paid for certain positions, whether it's, you know, source of income discrimination that's causing people to um, you know, pay too much for their rent so they can't save for a down payment, uh, whether it's, you know, inappropriate eviction po policies that cause people to be unnecessarily evicted, and then it makes it much harder for them to become a homeowner. So what, what are the barriers to homeownership in this community? Certainly one of them is supply, and so that's why we're trying to build, but what are the right, other things right. that are getting in the way of people being able to be good homeowners? Yeah, well, Laura, I love the energy you bring to this. Um, I'm uh, excited for the potential of all these issues. And again, uh, informed or better informed now, as I know our listeners are about what you and Habitat are trying to do. I guess I want to go back to you personally, Laura, and your journey, uh, 15 years or so in the nonprofit sector. Have you found particular resource? You talked about that lateral entry from for-profit to nonprofit. I'm curious, have there been certain things that have really helped you along the way as you have grown to senior leadership? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, and I get, you know, I get asked a lot from folks that are contemplating a move from, from a corporate to a nonprofit position, you know, pros, cons, what, it, you know, what, it, what did I learn? What was surprising? Everything else like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, 
you know, I think the biggest thing um, that I share with folks is to make sure that they're doing it for the right reason. Um, you know, if somebody thinks that they're going to move from the corporate side to the nonprofit side, you know, nonprofit is really just a tax status, right? Like it's, yeah. it's it is yeah. not a description of an industry. Um, you know, and they think that they're going to do that in order to get off the, you know, corporate, you know, career, you know, ladder or, or treadmill or whatever. Treadmill. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. Treadmill. Um, and that, you know, they think that, you know, I want better work life balance. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to leave corporate, um, for nonprofit, you know, um, those are not the reasons to do it. Um, you know, you need to do it for the right reasons, which you know needs to be that you want to work with a, a mission based organization right? That you want to wake up in the morning and, and go to bed at night worrying about the constituency you serve. Um, you need to understand that most likely you'll come to a, an organization that is understaffed and under-resourced um, and, and is trying to do, you know, great community service. So, um, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's um, it, it, it's, its own treadmill, um, but, <laughs> right, right. Um, but, I, but I do, you know, I do think that, that there are some folks that, that, think that it is a, you know, slower, easier, easier you know, way right. of light. Um, I have never been more intellectually challenged than I am right now in working in housing and especially in home ownership, uh, affordable home ownership, because, you know, the market forces don't work. If they did, you wouldn't need us, right? So the market forces don't work. We have to continually look at, um, you know, one of the great things about Charlotte is, is how prosperous the community has been. It's growing, it's thriving. Lots of people move here. Okay. Well, that means that the people that are looking for housing solutions are exceeding, you know, the supply is not keeping up with demand. And so market forces are tough. And so when you, when you have just that, that economic market force uh, occurring, you're going to have price uh, consequences and, you know, I have never been more intellectually challenged than I am right now um, in this point of my career. Can only imagine. You're right. And nonprofit has every bit of the intellectual and strategic challenge that I think any sector um, has. And how do you keep yourself sharp, Laura? You're such a good example of lifelong learning. Uh, and over the course of your career, are the things you continue to do to, to push yourself? You know, I, I, I am um, I, I thirst for, you know, learning and, and, you know, listening to subject matter experts and, and you know, whether it's going to training or conferences or looking, listening to podcasts or, or reading or, you know, whatever it is, I, I am constantly trying to find um, different tools, different resources um, to challenge me, to, to help keep me fresh um, on, you know, how we're going to think about this next strategic plan in a new merged organization, you know doing it the way we did it five years ago doesn't make sense. So how right. are we going to, how are we going to recreate that? How are we going to bring fresh energy to it? Yeah, that's fantastic. And of course you, you've built a very strong team too. So I guess one other, um, I guess, HR related question is how have you done such a good job of building a strong team? What are the things you look for in building uh, the folks around you? Um, I, I am really blessed to have such a great team. Um, you know, throughout the whole organization. Uh, a lot of that is, you know, looking for folks that are drawn to our core values um, and that, you know, are really, you know, interested in working hard to advance our mission. Um, you know, so, you know, our team, you know, is constantly focused on how we can serve more families. How do we do that better? How do we do it more impactfully? So we have, you know, shared vision, shared common activity that way. 
Um, and then, you know, constantly looking for the right subject matter experts and the skill sets that marry up with that passion so that we have, um, you know, really a tapestry of, of professionals that work well as individuals and as a team. Yeah, well put. And, and clearly you have done that. And as we close here in a few minutes, um, obviously I want folks to, to learn more about your organization and you can direct them, perhaps some that would love to work for you someday. Um, before we get to that, however, you, I'm going to ask a, a parting gift, Laura, would be a book recommendation. As you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, tell us, is there a book that uh, you would lift up as a recommendation to our listeners? Yeah, I'll share with you a book that my my senior staff and I are using right now. We've we've you know we took a little bit of a hiatus during the uh, the immediate pivot of COVID, but we are are with the with we are taking a renewed energy to it with the start of the new fiscal year here, July first, uh, and that's the book called Traction. Um, the subtitle on it is Get a Grip on Your Business, and it's by Gino Wickman. Um, and what we have found is that uh, it brings a certain amount of um, discipline to some of the chaos of running a business, right? And so it's, it's, it's trying to get us focused on, you know, how to make sure that if we have annual goals, how do you break those down into quarterly goals and then into, you know, monthly milestones and, you know, weekly updates uh, so that we all know that we're marching in the right direction and that, you know, um, we are communicating effectively about what is getting done and what is getting in the way of us getting things done so that we can solve problems faster. Love that. In fact, it is on my shelf and I agree with you. It is a great way to kind of organize a lot of your operations as an organization. Tell me the last question related, I guess, is a team book uh, effort like that. How do you do that? You just literally decided it was something that the whole kind of senior team would read together. Yeah, you know, I'd heard about it from a couple of folks. I talked to the team, you know, you know, we, I think we had all kind of felt like we had a lot going on um, and that, you know, we wanted to, you know, essentially like the subtitle of the book says, you know, we wanted to get a grip on what was going on and that, right, right. Um, you know, sometimes uh, as leaders, we all feel like we're just running around spinning the plates, um, you know, at the circus and we're just trying to figure out how to not let them fall. But we wanted to move beyond just spinning plates to actually getting some things um, done more intentionally. And so, you know, I, I think the timing was right for our team. We'd been working together a couple of years. And, and so the, the idea that we wanted to take it to the next level uh, and, and there's probably a, a, a variety of different operational uh, management tools we could have used, but this is the one we picked. And so then we kind of just, you know, broke it up into chapters. We read it and, you know, and we had an offsite and spent time talking about it and then slowly started, you know, kind of self-implementing it a chapter at a time. Love that. I think it's a good recommendation for organizations to find professional development opportunities that they can and do together. So good for you and for sharing all of this great advice, Laura, with our listeners. Of course, in our show notes, we'll include your book recommendation and many other topics. Uh, Clearly, the Habitat Charlotte website, or is there anything in particular you would direct a listener who wants to learn more or where to send them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, our website, um, which we have recently uh, just updated our website post-merger, so it's uh, habitatcltregion.org, so new new website. 
Excellent. Uh, so I encourage people to go out there. You can sign up for emails where you will get periodic information about what the organization is doing. There's also advocacy emails where, you know, where we, you might want to lend your voice to a policy activities. Uh, and then, um, you know, my team is doing such a great job on social media that you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and follow along to all the great things. And we share a lot of family stories there on, on families as they move in and the construction process and volunteer opportunities. Um, so yeah, between the, the website and the social media, you can find out a lot about us. <laughs> Indeed they will and can, and I'm happy to share it. And Laura, thank you so much for joining me on the path. Well, I appreciate the invitation. It's been great. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Laura as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and enhance your organization strategy, particularly as you contemplate alliances and partnerships that may benefit the mission of your nonprofit. Don't forget the show notes available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. You can find out more about everything we discussed in this episode. And as always, I'd be grateful if you'd share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, consider subscribing. Just go to the podcast page, also at patentmcdowell.com, and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday morning, and we also have bonus features lined up, typically once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.